today's reading. If you will stand with me for the reading of God's Word. It's from Psalm 119. The psalmist says, Teach me, Lord, the meaning of your statutes, and, and I will always keep them. Help me understand your instruction, and I will obey it and follow it with all of my heart. Help me stay on the path of your commands, for I take pleasure in it. Turn my heart to your decrees and not to dishonest profit. Turn my eyes from looking at what is worthless and give me life in your ways. Confirm what you said to your servant, for it produces reverence for you. And turn away the disgrace I dread. Indeed, your judgments are good. How I long for your precepts. Give me life through your righteousness. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, you are holy, righteous, and a great God who is worthy of our highest praise. And you're also an ever-present help in time of need. Would you help us today to apply that psalm? Would you help us to delight in your ways and not the ways of the world? Would you make us teachable today? Would you help our hearts to be inclined toward obedience and not disobedience? Help us to delight and take pleasure and joy in your truths. And we pray for Pastor Ryan this morning that you would anoint him in the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit so that he can preach with boldness and faithfulness and accuracy and God, we ask that you would stretch forth your hand and do mighty things among us. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. amen. You may be seated. Thanks, Jeff. If you have a Bible, I'd like to invite you to open it up to 1 Samuel chapter 25. 1 Samuel chapter 25 is where we're going to be this morning, covering the entire chapter. Uh, just to piggyback off of what Jeff said, we are truly thankful for all of your all's generosity. If you have questions about the uh, building project as a whole, Pastors Daniel and Patrick would love any uh, communication to come to them. My email is broken, so you would just uh, send it their way. They would appreciate that. While turning to 1 Samuel 25, let me ask you a question. Has God ever stopped you from doing something stupid, something foolish? Can you think back upon your life, and maybe it was the Holy Spirit's conviction, Maybe it came about through the words of someone else, but you wanted to do something dumb. You wanted that sin, or you wanted to go with those people, or you wanted to buy that thing, and God in his kindness stopped you. Theologically, we would call that God's restraining grace in your life. It is a part of God's grace towards us. I can think of a few of those moments in my life, God restraining me in circumstances that I in my sinful flesh wanted, even God providentially guiding me along other paths than I thought I would originally take. I didn't want to go down those paths, yet he forced me. We had a big move right before my freshman year of high school, and I hated it. I was angry. I lashed out at my parents. For lack of better terminology, I was a jerk to them. Looking back, young people, sometimes time truly does give us better perspective, Looking back, that was God providentially restraining me from going down certain paths even further. Did I still sin after that move? Of course. But he was keeping me from further sin in many ways. We can think of God keeping us from sinning in our relationships and our actions as we reflect back. Relationships that in the moment we probably hoped would work out. And they didn't. And now we thank God that they didn't. We can even think of us really wanting to let somebody have a piece of our mind. They got to get what's coming to them, right? And we withheld our tongue when we saw how their folly came about in other ways. God graciously 
restrains us. And today of all days, some of you know this, some of you don't, there's a certain game being played this afternoon. Sometimes I wonder, why did God not restrain me in my choice of a team? Why did God allow my dad to pass on his love for the Dallas Cowboys? And here I am receiving text messages from you all during the season with flavorful language about the Cowboys and how good of a team they are. Why did God not restrain that? And then he reminds me, when I don't respond to your lovely messages, when I don't return evil with evil, that I'm practicing restraint myself and life comes full circle, but I digress. God is gracious, my friends. And this morning, I want us to think about a not often thought about part of his grace. I want us to think about a not often thought about part of his grace, and it's his restraining grace. You see, by grace, we are saved. By grace, we are trained up in the faith. And the part of grace that we're looking at this morning is that by grace, God at times stops us from messing things up even more. He stops us from sinning. Because maybe even now, God's restraining grace is at work in your life and you aren't even aware of it. And that's what we're going to see this morning in the story of David. Our main point, if you're taking notes, there's an outline provided in the bulletin. Our main point is that God graciously and providentially restrains us from sin. This morning's sermon is structured around the three main characters in the text. I'll go ahead and provide the outline up front to you. First, we're going to see a foolish man. Second, a wise woman. And third, a protected king. At the end, I hope to give us some application from the entire chapter. If I could just remind us very briefly, chapters 24 through 26 of 1 Samuel are a literary section. Last week, Jeff preached on chapter 24. If you remember, we got to see David extend mercy towards Saul. He didn't deserve the mercy. David is a man of mercy, and he extends it towards him. And in chapter 26, you actually see that same thing. It's almost a repetition, if you will, that he is extending mercy to Saul once more. But here in the middle, chapter 25, sandwiched in the middle, David himself will now be shown mercy, or rather, mercifully restrained by God. Because in this week, in this story, David is tempted to take matters into his own hands. He's tempted to take them out of God's hands. He's tempted to become a Saul-like king instead of a Deuteronomy 17 king. So let's jump into the text this morning. Point number one, a foolish man. Start reading in verse one. Samuel died, and all Israel assembled to mourn for him, and they buried him by by his home in Ramah. David then went down to the wilderness of Paran. A man of Maon had a business in Carmel. He was a very rich man with 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats and was shearing his sheep in Carmel. The man's name was Nabal and his wife's name Abigail. The woman was intelligent and beautiful, but the man, a Calebite, was harsh and evil in his dealings. While David was in the wilderness, he heard that Nabal was shearing sheep. So David sent 10 young men instructing them, go up to Carmel and when you come to Nabal, greet him in my name. Then say this, long life to you and peace to you, peace to your family and peace to all that is yours. I hear that you are shearing. When your shepherds were with us, we did not harass them and nothing of theirs was missing the whole time that they were in Carmel. Ask your young men and they will tell you. So let my young men find favor with you for we have come on a feast day. Please give us whatever you have on hand to your servants and to your son, David. Verse nine, David's young men went and said all these things to Nabal on David's behalf and they waited Nabal asked them, who is David? Who is Jesse's son? Many slaves these days are running away from their masters. Am I supposed to take my bread and my water and my meat that I butchered for my shears and give them to these men? I don't know where they're from. 
David's young men retraced their steps. When they returned to him, they reported all these words. He said to his men, all of you, put on your swords. So each man put on his sword, and David also put on his sword. About 400 men followed David, while 200 stayed behind with the supplies. Point number one, a foolish man. Notice in the text, sometimes we can skip over this, notice how he is introduced. The writer doesn't say his name right away. He wants us to glean something about his persona. He says he had a business, he was rich, and then he lists some of his possessions. The writer of this first Samuel passage is signaling to us that this man's possessions precede his person. His life is determined by his property. And as we will see, he both lives to defend his property and dies enjoying his property. And who is this man? He's Nabal, a name that means fool, or as we'll come to see in a moment, stupid. He doesn't just lack manners, he lacks any semblance of spiritual, moral, or societal good. And even further, through his possessions and through his parties that he likes to throw, as we'll see, he thinks of himself as a king. He is a king-type figure. Remember what I said about chapter 24, 26, and this being in the middle, right? So you have Saul on each end, and here we have a Saul-like figure. Now, David won't raise his hand against the Lord's clearly anointed, but he'll raise his hand against this man. So David comes to him with a reasonable request. David's not strong-arming him here. He and his men haven't turned into marauders or raiders, but David is simply saying, I did something for you. I helped you. Would you be willing to return the favor? Some scholars in the language even see this as maybe David even trying to enter into a covenant of loyalty here. Notice how David humbles himself in verse 8. He calls himself a son towards Nabal. You know who else he did that for? Saul. Saul will call him a son in this very next chapter. So he greets him formally, respectfully, humbly. And how does Nabal return the deed? Someone who's, how does he do it? He basically spits on David. Who is David? Reminds us of Pharaoh saying, and who is Yahweh? Who is Jesse's son? A possible runaway slave? Isaiah 32.6 is what Nabal shows here. For a fool speaks foolishness and his mind plots iniquity. He lives in a godless way and speaks falsely about the Lord. He leaves the hungry empty and deprives the thirsty of drink. Have you ever known a fool? Have you ever known someone like this? Try not to think of any family. Someone who spits on the kindness of others. Someone who has maybe even returned your good with evil. Someone who has, probably shouldn't say this, but someone who's never been punched before. You know the anger that can arise, right? The anger to defend ourselves, to defend our honor, to bring justice down like thunder and lightning. And David wants to do just that. And foolish Nabal doesn't realize the mistake he's making. It's even part of the definition of a fool, right? They don't know that they're a fool. That's him here. And notice once more in the text the love that he has for his possessions and how that comes out in his answer. After he calls David a possible runaway slave, he says, am I supposed to take my bread, my water, my meat and give it to them? Nabal is consumed by avarice, consumed by greed, and he's a fool on top of that, and that's a deadly combination. So what's the right response? What would every man in here struggle with in this very circumstance? It's time to teach Nabal a lesson. Notice three times in verse 13 the word sword. All of you put on your sword. So each man put on his sword, and David also put on his sword. He's not playing games. He's going to kill Nabal. 
Proverbs 18.6 is true for him here. A fool's lips lead to strife, and his mouth provokes a beating. Before we go to our second character, who we'll spend more time on, let me say this. Fools existed then, clearly. Fools exist now. In this side of eternity, they will continue to exist. Nabals have ultimately gone nowhere. Because the reality is, friends, all those, apart from the grace of God at work in their life, are Nabals. They are fools. Proverbs chapter 1, if you remember towards the beginning of that chapter, it opens up that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Therefore, fools are those who do not fear God. And therefore, they cannot be wise. And yet, so that reality is true, and yet we have to hold Titus 3.3 true as well, don't we? For we too were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by various passions and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, detesting one another. Praise God he saves fools like us. Praise God that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to be the atoning sacrifice that you and I needed. Praise God that through his death and burial and resurrection, and now through faith in his finished work, you and I are forgiven and redeemed and united to Christ for all of eternity. That's great news for fools to hear and to come to embrace. So we are to learn from the foolishness of Nabal here. And David, as I said, he wants to take matters into his own hands. As a man of mercy, last chapter in chapter 24, he's tempted here. He starts succumbing to the temptation. So let's jump back in. Verse 14, point number two, a wise woman. Point number two, a wise woman. Look with me, verse 14. One of Nabal's young men informed Abigail, Nabal's wife, look, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, but he screamed at them. The men treated us very well. When we were in the field, we weren't harassed, and nothing of ours was missing the whole time we were living among them. They were a wall around us both day and night, the entire time we were with them herding the sheep. Now consider carefully what you should do, because there is certain to be trouble for our master and his entire family. He is such a worthless fool. Nobody can talk to him. Abigail hurried, taking 200 loaves of bread, two clay jars of wine, five butchered sheep, a bushel of roasted grain, 100 clusters of raisins, and 200 cakes of pressed figs, and loaded them on donkeys. Then she said to her her male servants, go ahead of me, I'll be right behind you. But she did not tell her husband, Nabal. Verse 20, as she rode rode the donkey down a mountain pass hidden from view, she saw David and his men coming toward her, and he met them. David had just said, I guarded everything that belonged to this man in the wilderness for nothing. He was not missing anything, yet he paid me back evil for good. May God punish me and do so severely if I let any of his males survive until morning. When Abigail saw David, she quickly got off the donkey and knelt down with her face to the ground and paid homage to David. She knelt at his feet and said, the guilt is mine, my Lord, but please let your servant speak to you directly. Listen to the words of your servant. My Lord should pay no attention to this worthless fool Nabal, for he lives up to his name. His name means stupid, and stupidity is all he knows. I, your servant, didn't see my Lord's young men whom you sent. Now, my Lord, as surely as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, it is the Lord who kept you from participating in bloodshed and avenging yourself by your own hand. May your enemies and those who intend to harm you be, or harm my Lord, be like Nabal. Let this gift your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive your servant's offense, for the Lord is certain to make a lasting dynasty for my Lord because he fights the Lord's battles. Throughout your life, may evil not be found in you. 
Verse 29, someone is pursuing you and intends to take your life. My Lord's life is tucked safely in the place where the Lord your God protects the living, but he is flinging away your enemies' lives like stones from a sling. When the Lord does for my Lord all the good he promised you and appoints you ruler over Israel, there will, be, there will not be remorse or a troubled conscience for my Lord because of needless bloodshed or my Lord's revenge. And when the Lord does good things for my Lord, may you remember me, your servant." Point number two, a wise woman. This chapter, in chapter 25 of 1 Samuel, is filled with direct speech. And here we have the longest speech recorded in the book. And although Nabal is a fool, thankfully, in God's kindness, somehow, he has a perceptive servant and a wise wife. Abigail, as we are introduced to her in verse 3, is told that we are, she is smart and beautiful. I would also call her honorable and fearless, humble resourceful. She is in many ways the quintessential Proverbs 31 woman. She is everything her husband is not. We will come back to that. And so the perceptive, perceptive servant comes to her and tells her of the fool's foolishness. In many ways, he is the unsung hero here. We don't know his name, but he hears of this dire situation and he goes to someone who can do something about it. He even says, he's such a worthless fool. No one can talk to him. It's a great description, right? But friends, there are, side note here, there are so many nameless people in the Bible who do extraordinary things in Scripture. And God is encouraging me with this this very week. God uses the named and the nameless alike. And so be encouraged, because even though our names are not written in God's holy Scripture right here, and we might feel small in comparison to some of these giants of that faith, God uses the big and the small for His purposes alike. Nameless and named. And so he tells Abigail about this, and notice this, right away, she hears of it, she takes action. She takes action. She's not a woman who sits around and waits, not a woman who's going to let a foolish husband lead and drive her and and drive the family to misery and folly. No, she takes action. She gathers the appropriate supplies to feed the troops, hops on the donkey, and begins the trek down the mountain pass. Meanwhile, David is beyond angry. He's riding with his 400 men, and the narrator is building the tension for us, isn't he? What is going to happen? He's clearly going to take justice into his hands until they meet at this mountain pass. Now, I think culturally speaking, I think David is okay in what he's doing. In the ancient Near East, to violate hospitality customs, to degrade someone's kindness was a severe offense. So I think culturally speaking, David is okay in what he's doing, but the narrator is making it very clear that this is not something David should do. And David's going to recognize that as well. It comes through as well in in, uh, Abigail's speech. And did you notice how many times, it's hard to not get tongue-tied over it, how many times the word Lord was said, some in reference to God, and many in reference to David. She's showing deference and appealing to his honor. She's also recognizing his anointed king status. So let me just highlight some of the wisdom in her speech for us this morning. Verse 24, she knelt at his feet and said, the guilt is mine, my Lord. You know who else said that before? David. When he hears of Saul slaughtering the priest in chapter 22 and Ahimelech's son escapes and tells David and David says, I myself am responsible. Verse 25, my Lord should pay no attention to this worthless fool Nabal for he lives up to his name. His name means stupid and stupidity is all he knows. I don't take Abigail to be sinning 
in how she is talking about her husband here. She is living in reality. The man is a fool, and she's trying to fix his mistakes. And as her honor shines forth here, I'm sure she had attempted to honor Nabal as his wife any way she could, but the man's folly is his own undoing. Abigail is simply speaking the truth. She's not sugarcoating the situation. I have many side remarks this morning, so let me start with another one. When you open up to another about the struggles and the sins that you are facing, you can learn something from Abigail here. Don't sugarcoat it. Don't make it sound better than it is. Ah, I'm just kind of struggling with this vague sin over here that I don't really want to describe that much, and I want you to read between the lines and fill in the details. Don't do that. Speak the truth. Call your sin for what it is, sin. And the person hearing your confession will be gracious and point you to the grace of God, but let us not be a people who beat around the bush when speaking the truth. Grace and truth held together, as Abigail does here. Verse 26, it is the Lord who kept you from participating in bloodshed and avenging yourself by your own hand. Before David has even made his final decision, she boldly appeals to the Lord and his restraining grace, saying, he has done this for you. Recognize it. Verse 28, for the Lord is certain to make a lasting dynasty for my Lord because he fights the Lord's battles. That lasting dynasty might be translated in your, in your Bible as a sure house. It's covenantal language. It's pointing forward to what is to come in 2 Samuel 7 with the Davidic covenant where God says that he himself will build a house for David. How wise and foreshadowing are Abigail's words. Verse 29, someone is pursuing you and intends to take your life, but he, God, is flinging away your enemies' lives like stones from a sling. What's she doing here? She's wise and appealing to David's history. Israel knows what happens between, happened between David and the Philistine giant. She's saying this, David, don't do this. God has clearly been protecting you. God has been with you, even in how you killed that Philistine giant with the stone and the sling, and now God is doing the same exact thing to your enemies. She's putting God's miraculous and awesome acts back in front of David. She's reminding him of what he's done. Don't forget these things, David. Verse 30. When the Lord does for my Lord all the good he promised you and appoints you ruler over Israel, there will not be remorse or a troubled conscience for my Lord because of needless bloodshed or my Lord's revenge. She's telling David, everyone knows you're going to be king. We know it's coming. Don't do this act. Don't possibly incur some blood guilt or possibly trouble your conscience down the road because you weren't resting in God. You weren't trusting in him to act. And David recognizes here the wisdom in Abigail's speech. And he recognizes God's restraining grace coming through in her speech. Divine intervention accomplished through human initiative. As one writer says, the chosen king wanted his gore. He wanted his bloodshed. Yet Yahweh sent him a savior in skirts. Many husbands here could say amen to their godly wives saying just the thing they needed to hear at the right time. And Abigail is just that. This woman is awesome. And so her mission is successful. David hears the wisdom, and he has the conviction to acknowledge that what he's about to do is wrong. And this brings us to our third scene, our third character, a protected king. Point number three, a protected king. Read with me, starting in verse 32 through the end of the chapter. Then David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel who sent you to meet me today. May your discernment be blessed, and may you be blessed. Today you kept me from participating in bloodshed and avenging myself by my own hand. 
Otherwise, as surely as the Lord God of Israel lives, who prevented me from harming you, if you had not come quickly to meet me, Nabal wouldn't have had any males left by morning light. Then David accepted what she had brought him and said, Go home in peace. See, I have heard what you said and have granted your request. Then Abigail went to Nabal, and there he was in his house, holding a feast fit for a king. Nabal's heart was cheerful, and he was very drunk, so she didn't say anything to him until morning light. In the morning, when Nabal sobered up, his wife told him about these events. His heart died, and he became a stone. About ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal dead. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who championed my cause against Nabal's insults and restrained his servant from doing evil. The Lord brought Nabal's evil deeds back on his head. Then David sent messengers to speak to Abigail about marrying him. When David's servants came to Abigail at Carmel, they said to her, David sent us to bring you to him as a wife. She stood up, paid homage with her face on the ground, and said, Here I am, your servant, a slave to wash the feet of my Lord's servants. Then Abigail got up quickly, and with her five female servants accompanying her, rode on the donkey following David's messengers, and so she became his wife. Verse 43 and 44, David also married Ahinoam of Jezreel, and the two of them became his wives. But Saul gave his daughter Michal, David's wife, to Palti, son of Laish, who was from Galim. Point number three, a protected king. As I said earlier, David sees the wisdom and sees God's providence at work. He says this at the beginning, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel who sent you to meet me today. David, as the Lord's anointed, will be king. This is a major theme that we've been seeing throughout 1 Samuel. He will be king, and not only that, he is the protected king. He's protected by God from so many different enemies. He's protected in particular from Saul, right? And now, as the protected king, he's protected by God again, but from himself. And friends, this is so true of us, whether we want to admit it or not. We like to think that a lot of our problems are outside of us, that our problems are just with other people, that our problems are with our family members or the uh, circumstances in our home or our work or our boss or our coworkers or whatever else. And there can be problems in those things for sure. But what the Bible repeatedly hits us over the head with in a loving way is that the problem fundamentally is us. The problem within us is sin, that we have rebelled against a holy God, that we love our sinful flesh more than we love God naturally. And that's what it tells us time and time again. So as I said earlier, praise God for the Son of God who came and did something about that problem. And so the Christian here, the one in the new covenant who has been given a new heart, who has professed faith in Christ, knows the freedom and the forgiveness that comes about through Jesus Christ. You know that. You've experienced that. But David here had to be reminded, as we all do this side of eternity, that he can't succumb to the sinful flesh. He can't be a Saul-like king and take matters into his own hands. He must rely on the Lord above all else, and as the anointed king, he must look to Yahweh to be his defender. So Abigail goes home. She waits until Nabal is no longer drunk, Notice, as I tried to emphasize, he's holding a feast fit for a king. He thinks of himself as a king, as I mentioned. So after the wine had gone out from him, after he sobers up, Abigail tells the fool what happened. We have this interesting verse in verse 37. In the morning when Nabal sobered up, his wife told him about these events. His heart died and he became a stone. 
It's hard to know exactly what happened here. Maybe he became like a dead man. Maybe he had a stroke. Some commentators think that. Maybe he was quiet and in solitude. But Nabal is confronted with his foolishness. And in the very next verse, the Lord takes his life. Abigail's words to David come true. He is the protected king. And all is well. And now ideally, if I'm being honest, I would have loved for the story to end there. But we can't. That's not how scripture ends it. Because in verses 39 through 43, there are some things that need to be briefly explained. Another one of my side notes. David takes multiple wives, doesn't he? He does that which Deuteronomy 17 says that the king should not do. Now, some think that Saul had already given McCall, if you read that last verse, had already given McCall to someone else, and that's why he sends for Abigail to be his wife. Others think that Saul did that after these events. We aren't sure. And David, as we'll see in 2 Samuel, he does get McCall back. He does get her back as his wife. Whatever the case, my argument is this. I think the writer is presenting David's actions towards Abigail actually in a positive light. In the ancient Near East, caring for a widowed woman was an honorable thing to do. And here he has seen her beauty, her intelligence, her wisdom, and a whole host of other things, and wants her to be his wife. And if you'll see in the text, Abigail is all too happy to go. She quickly gets on that donkey, right? And yet, despite Deuteronomy 17, the king not taking multiple wives, David marries another one, as it says there, in Ahinoam. So what do we do? It's clearly not something good. I think, in my understanding, it could be possibly foreshadowing what's going to happen with Bathsheba. So I just briefly, briefly want to say something about polygamy in the Bible. Polygamy was never God's intended plan or framework. It was to be one man and one woman for all of life. Yet because of our sin, we push against that. Even when we're married and before we're married, we push against that idea. We rebel against it. And that's what we see in Scripture as well, that constantly, even in these constraints, in God's good plan, we push against that idea. So everything from the worst acts of adultery to the lust of the eyes, as Jesus talks about, our sinful flesh is at war against what God says is good and what he has instituted. But I think that Alex Matier's comment is most helpful concerning polygamy in the Bible. He says this, Polygamy in the Bible was tolerated by God at times so that mankind may look on those circumstances and realize that in every instance you find it in the scriptures, it always involves jealousy, conflict, and chaos. In other words, it's recorded to show us what a mess we make of things when we step beyond the boundaries of God's plan. Tolerated, not condoned. And ultimately, we are to learn from the folly of it. So David is protected but he's clearly not perfect. He's pointing past himself to the one who would come who is perfect, the one who would be the Deuteronomy 17 king. And yet as the anointed king, he's protected here, and God in his kindness exercises a gracious restraint of David. And so after walking through the text and closing here, I have five application points, and I promise to walk through them quickly. Application point number one, Proverbs 26.4. Don't answer a fool according to his foolishness, or you'll be like him yourself. Don't answer a fool according to his foolishness, or you'll be like him yourself. Our first application is just scripture. And honestly, there are many Proverbs I could have selected. But we are to learn from the foolishness evident in this story. 
In this life, as I said, you will have fools say foolish things to you. Fools ridicule you, throw you under the bus, even try to get you fired, and they will infuriate you. While defending oneself is not always bad, I want to say that up front, in many ways, fools left to their own devices receive their own judgment. Let us be Christians who embrace a Proverbs 26.4 life. Point number two, look to God, not possessions. Look to God, not possessions. This application is a little bit more subtle from the text, but this side of eternity and living in the West in particular and living in America even more particular, it can be hard to be content with our lot in life. Consumerism is pushed down our throats. Everybody advertising to us wants us to buy more and more. It can be very easy to have those thoughts of, if I just had more fill in the blank, then everything in my life would be better. But notice from this story and notice from the fool in the ball that possessions in no way imply happiness. And in fact, in light of Jesus' warnings in the New Testament, possessions can possibly serve as a hindrance to following God. So listen, we all have problems. We all have besetting sins that we are fighting against, sinful desires that we are fighting against. But Nabal is a case study of how to learn from this foolish man who in one sense had everything material one could want and was still miserable. He was still a fool. May that not be true of us. Application point number three, learn from Abigail. Learn from Abigail. This is for men and women alike here. This wise woman of God is amazing. We can all learn from her willingness to take action, to not let wrong things remain wrong, to fix them when we learn from them, learn of them, to ultimately point another to the truth of God's promises and to rest in his sovereign plan. She teaches all of us that. But I would like to make one specific further application to one particular group of women here, and that is those of you who are married to an unbelieving spouse. Abigail, in many ways, is the Old Testament equivalent to the first Peter 3 woman. In her intelligence and her beauty, and as I said, I'm sure she honored her foolish husband as hard as that was to do, but notice this. She did not follow him into his folly or into his sin. Her loyalty was to God above all else. She was a woman who was wise and resourceful, and honestly, she was too good for Nabal, but she knew the God of Israel, and she trusted in him no matter the circumstances. My sister, I know that that is true of you. And I know that you have prayed often, and I know that you are mindful of 1 Peter 3, that through your honoring and submission to an unbelieving husband, you would, through the convicting power of the Holy Spirit, be an instrument that God uses to win him to Christ. That's your prayer, and that is our prayer as well. But may you be encouraged this morning from Abigail, from her testimony and a life of that. And men, 14th side note, whatever it is this morning, Maybe it should have been its own application point. I don't know. Aspire to be someone that your wife wants to submit to. Aspire to be someone that your wife wants to submit to. From my perspective on the church at large, we have more godly women who desire husbands that would lead than what is actually happening. Point number four, learn from David. Learn from David. When confronted with his folly, when, when confronted with his possible path of sin, he doesn't make excuses. He doesn't continue on with taking matters into his own hands, but he acknowledges the wisdom of another and he stops his course of action. Wisdom demands this of us in the Christian life. Listen, we live in a fallen world. There are a whole host of things that we need wisdom for, right? But there will be people who see you on a path towards sin, 
who see you flirting with something that you shouldn't be, who see something in your life that you are just blind to, listen to that conviction when it comes. Listen to it. Don't ignore it. Don't downplay it. Learn from David here. Be willing to change course. As I said, living life in this fallen world, we need uh, so much wisdom. And Christian wisdom has to be multifaceted. It has to apply to so many different things in life. We need it every single day of our lives. But when that comes to you, the wisdom of another comes to you and warns you, don't keep plowing on into your sin. Don't ignore it. It's not a good sign. Which brings me to my last application point. Thank God for his restraining grace in your life. Thank God for his restraining grace in your life. God graciously and providentially restrained David from sin, and he graciously and providentially restrains you and I the same. Thank him for that. Thank him preemptively and thank him after you are aware of it. Because in his grace, he not only saves us from past sins, he protects us from future ones. This is a mercy of God towards us, that he frustrates. In our sinful flesh, we want to commit that sin. We want to go down that path, and he frustrates our purposes. He puts roadblock after roadblock in our way, just like he did David here. He puts hindrances in our paths to even greater sin, and that is his mercy and his grace towards us. And the reality is, is that our temptation is always towards a form of self-righteousness, to think that in and of ourselves, we're, we're not that bad, that we are pretty good, that we're okay. But that line of thinking only robs God of his grace all the more. All that we owe to God, all that we owe to God is based on his grace. No matter our past, no matter what could have been, God's grace in Christ towards us, past, present, and future is what covers us. More side notes. Specifically to young people, teenagers, college age, it is very easy to take for granted growing up in the church. It's easy to take that for granted, that you have godly examples around you and that want to invest in you, that you have godly parents, hopefully, that are wanting to do the same, who want to keep you from sin, who desire to see you grow in the Christian life and mature in your Christian walk. Don't ever take that for granted. Don't just think that mom and dad are trying to stifle you, that they have too many rules. Learn to see that as the grace of God at work in your life. They're not doing it perfectly. No parent is perfect. But learn to see that as the grace of God at work in your life. Further, God brings relationships into our lives. He brings this covenant community, as I mentioned a couple weeks back, into our lives as a means of restraint. That's the grace of God at work towards us. Press in. Get to know others. Make yourself accountable. Don't hide. And even more, another side note, his restraining grace... His restraining grace is at work in all of our lives differently, isn't it? His restraining grace is at work in all of our lives differently. Every testimony of God's grace is an amazing thing. It's a miraculous thing that he brought us from death to life. So let's make sure that we always view God's restraining grace in each of our lives properly then. Because I hear this often. Some who grow up in the church, when they're sharing their testimony, they say, man, I just wish I had that stark change. I hear the testimonies of others who are doing everything under the sun, and I wish I had that big of a change in my life. Nonsense. Talk to those who have that testimony. They'll say that they wish they had your testimony. There's no comparison in the kingdom of God. 
There is no comparison to the kingdom of God. All testimonies are amazing. And he has restrained us all differently. Whether you grew up in the church and you have known his ways from an early age, or whether you were hell-bent on tearing your life apart and God saved you in the midst of doing just that, neither testimony makes you any closer to God. We all come in the same way, and that's by the blood of the Lamb, the blood of Jesus Christ. His restraining grace is a wonderful thing in our lives, and we should praise him for it all the more. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, we praise you as your gathered people and as your church this morning, and we praise you for your grace at work in our lives. Father, the grace that you have shown us through your son, Jesus Christ, we can never fully thank you for. We can never be more and more astounded at. And God, we thank you for saving grace, that we have been forgiven and redeemed. And I pray for the one here who is not. God, I pray that you would convict them of their sin, that you would open their eyes to see, their mind to believe, their heart to truly comprehend the beauty of Christ. Would you save them this morning? But for those of us who are saved, Father, we are desiring to grow, and we praise you for your grace, that you have been training us and growing us and maturing us, and it's all on account of your grace. But Father, help us to be remindful of what you restrained us from as well. Help us to know that in our sin, in our flesh, We would love our sin more and more, and yet you restrain us kindly and providentially, graciously. God, may we praise you for that. Would you help us to be aware of just how multifaceted your grace is and how it is at work in our lives and in the lives of others. We love you. Pray that you would praise you for all that you've done. It's in your sons that we pray. Amen.